As uh, I'm beginning, I do realize that there are pictures of children doing children's ministry projected up behind me, meaning that you will not hear the first five minutes of this message, and that's okay. I wouldn't look at me either if I had the opportunity to look at these beautiful children. But we are spending today devoted in our series, Simply Church, Today we're talking about making disciples of the next generation and how that calling is for everybody in the church. But I want to take a moment and bring up uh, Eric Bergstrom as someone who is uniquely called and freed up for gospel ministry to the youth and hear a little bit about what God is doing. Like we just sang, um, do you guys realize that we pick the songs not willy-nilly but we go in with the theme, the passage, and then we pick songs that will reinforce the theology behind that scripture. So when we say things like, look what God has done, and we go through a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we're about to teach on, that talks about how God is multiplying and calling us to multiply disciples to the next generation. When we sing a song like that, it reinforces that we not only look what God has done, we look what God is doing, and we believe that God is going to continue to be doing these things in our midst. So um, got a couple of questions for you as we... Uh, share a few things about what God is formally doing with the youth, and then we're going to share about more informal forms of discipleship. So uh, if you had to pick a thing or two that you're most excited about, about what God is doing with our youth, um, he is our pastor in training, worship leader, um, guy who comes and fixes stuff when it's broken, um, lackey, and youth guy. Um, so... Uh, Specifically about the youth, what are the things that you're most excited that God is doing right now? I think um, one of the things I'm most excited about is just the, the sense of uh, family that we've developed over the last two or so years, um, not just on Thursday nights, but extending beyond that just with our, our leadership team and our kids. Um, seeing our kids take ownership over Thursday nights, making it a point to consistently come out and then seeing things like inviting friends. Taking ownership over 
um, and seeing the growth of things like just kind of where you can really excite them. So. Um. One of the reoccurring themes that we're looking at at all three messages in this series is multiplication. Um, how are you seeing God multiply disciples amongst our young people? I think that specifically this year, it feels like it's, it's been kind of like just like a wave. Um, but we, I think the first, first two weeks of this year, we've had about nine, nine kids that have, haven't walked to our doors before. Um, a lot of those have been kids inviting kids. And some of that has just been through things that we're plugging into, like co-op, um, kids who are local that attend church but don't have a, a youth ministry to go to or don't have kids that are aged to connect with. So um, both just staying consistent, um, the reach of not just who our leaders are, you know, who our leaders are connecting with, but who our kids are connecting with at school, at co-op, um, seeing kids invite the kids is, is awesome. It's a, I think the most basic level of discipleship that happens, which is saying, I love Jesus. Hmm. It's been really cool to see that just kind of start off this year um, in a way that we're really excited. Hmm. Uh, the name of this series that we're in right now is called Simply Church, and it's one of our core values, not just one of our core values, but I believe a biblical core value, because Jesus seemed to operate within the realm of simplicity. Um, from the very beginning, from the very first sin, um, we've shown that we could take the most simple thing, like just don't eat of this tree, and complicate it, right? Well, God has said, do not eat it or touch it for in the day. So we had to just add something to it, and we unsimplified something, and then we've been doing it ever since. So how have you been able to keep it simple amongst the youth in a not very simple culture? I think it's a quality that's definitely like overlooked, especially if you youth ministry, plan simplicity. I think we, we intend to do the things that we do for a reason. So that schedule that we got, genuine discussion to happen outside of the walls of just events that are hosted here. Um, and so a lot of the real youth ministry work happens, uh, a leader taking two kids out, um, two kids getting together outside of youth group, um, people just getting together on their own, going into the community and showing their face in places like school and stuff like that. It's, that's where most of the ministry happens. So keeping it simple is not loading up As many of you know, I, I made it a weekly practice to fire Daniel Nelms, but I can't now. He's, he's out with his own church plant, so um, you're going to be the guy that I fire on a weekly basis, but you will not be fired on the basis of those answers, so uh, for one more week, you have a job. So that, that, um, Last week, we celebrated the birth of a new church plant, which um, they officially launched this week. They are... Um, beginning right now. I couldn't be more excited about that. Me and Daniel have just been texting back and forth giddy this morning with one another. Um, and uh, we brought them up to pray for them. How could we be praying for you and for the youth ministry for the upcoming year? Could you share with the church some areas? Absolutely. Uh, three things. 
there's a couple things that are in the works. We'll be praying for details of that, just about some local missionaries, some um, other mission opportunities outside the states. Uh, but those three things. Then the, the last question for you. Uh, well, last week we brought up the team that was going with the church plant, and we just brought up the team that's working with the children. So obviously we believe that Jesus demonstrated that when we're called to make disciples, that he sent them out two by two, or he sent out the 12 or the 70, but he always sent out teams. It was never an individual work. So um, anything you could tell us about your team, and is any of your team here today that we could pray for? I know a couple of them are over at the plant, but I see some of you out there. Stand up. Don't be shy. Stay standing for a moment. Yeah. We're going to make you stand uncomfortably long because he's going to share a prayer request and then we're going to pray for you. So. We're going to pray for these guys. So if you're near them, I'm going to pray for Eric here. And um, before I do, I love you, man. I'm proud of you. Could be. Um, if you're around them, just gather around them and pray. We're going to pray for them, and then we'll continue with our message. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for people who are uniquely set aside and called to minister to our youth, Lord. But we also believe that we're all called to minister to the next generation. We thank you for these who are standing here, Lord, who have answered that call and said, here am I, Lord, send me. And Lord, we ask that you would bless their faithfulness as they pour into the next generation, Lord. And um, God, is, just as I uh, remember praying with this guy when he was five years old in my children's ministry, um, I pray that these guys would be able to say that about this next generation someday, um, years down the road, Lord, that if you should tarry, that we would see a legacy of faithfulness that would carry on for years and years. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, youth helpers. You guys are an invaluable part to this church, and we're so grateful for you guys. Um, if you uh, have a Bible, if you could open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you don't have one, it will be projected up behind me, and there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Um, prior to getting into the message, there's four main points, and I'm going to give them to you right up front. Um, the church is called to multiply the gospel to the next generation. What exactly it is that we are called to multiply, where that multiplication primarily takes place, and whose responsibility it is to multiply into the next generation. The theme of the series 
is simply church. So we're not here to share with you a methodology, a philosophy of ministry, although we have those things. There's nothing wrong with having a methodology or a philosophy of ministry. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You should have those things. But what we're here to do is to strip away everything and say, what is just simply church? These are not a thing where you could say, well, that's your church's belief. This is my church's belief. These should be things that just simply carry themselves through church. And we're here to share that ministering to the next generation is just simply church. And I want to encourage you not to tune out. If you've already done so, I'm going to actually call you to repentance right at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, Don't tune out if you don't have kids or you have kids, but they're grown, so this doesn't speak to your stage of life, or if you're not involved with youth or children's ministry. This whole concept of this doesn't apply to my stage of life, so I'm just going to tune out is symptomatic of the greedy buffet-style churchianity that pervades the American church. So don't be that guy. So to reinforce this passage, I chose a passage that actually shows that it's everybody's responsibility. Deuteronomy 6, looking at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach to you that you are going to do them in the land and that you are going over to possess it. So who is this addressing? The original context was the Israelites that had just come out of Egypt, but it goes a little bit further than that. Moses is addressing the children of Israel before they're about to cross the Jordan to go into the promised land. Um, The generation before them had just gone through a pretty rough patch, to say the least. Um, And by a pretty rough patch, I mean God told them, yes, I brought you out of Egypt to bring you into the promised land, but because of your grumbling, complaining, ungrateful hearts, all of you will die in the wilderness. None of you will go into the promised land, and it will be the next generation that inherits the promise that I had offered to you. So by this time... Keep in mind, as we go through this, the original generation had died out, and this new generation, he's speaking to the audience that will inherit the promised land. This is who's being addressed, and Moses is telling this new generation, as you go into the promised land, do so with an eye towards the next generation. And something that just rocked my world as I studied this passage this week that I've never noticed before, even though... Um, I know this passage well. Um, Like some of you, I could recite it in Hebrew. Anybody want to uh, do the Shema with me? Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, Baruch, Shem, Gevod, Melchuto, Le'am, Ve'ed. You know, we could, I know this passage. But what I didn't ever think about that blew my mind is this was not an older generation he was speaking to. He was probably talking to people that didn't even have kids yet for the most part. Because remember, he had said everybody except for Joshua and Caleb from the previous generation had died. So these were only people that had been born during the wilderness um, wanderings that were going into the promised land. So he's he's about to talk to them about pouring into the next generation, but he's talking to people who do not yet have a next generation that they're raising up. So imagine going into your children's ministry, your youth ministry, your young adults ministry, and giving a message about, hey, we're going to talk to you about pouring into the next generation. And again, I, did not rec- I didn't mention older generations, because unfortunately in this passage you're dead, but that doesn't mean tune out. 
Um, so Deuteronomy 6 starts out with a commandment to take the teachings of the Lord and pass them along to the next generation. And we've already established who it is that God is talking to here. It was about 600,000 strong, and he's talking to everybody. Let me hear you say everybody. All right, I want to hear you say one more time, just so you can't leave here thinking that he was talking to everybody but you. Who was he talking to? All right. And in case you're thinking that it wasn't to everybody, this passage is actually quoted in three of the four Gospels when Jesus asked the greatest of all commandments. He brings up verse 4, and he says, this is the greatest commandment, do this, and you have kept the prophets and the law. So Jesus brings it into the New Testament in case you're saying, well, that's just sloppy exegesis, Eric. He's talking to the Jewish audience, and I'm dispensational, and I don't think like that. Well, then... I don't know what to tell you. Jesus thought differently. Um, he's instructing us to pour the knowledge of the Holy One into the next generation. And he's going to use some pretty strong words here to take out any wiggle room. Look again at verse 1 and verse 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God command me to teach you that you may do them in the land when you're going in to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God your sons and your sons' sons by keeping all of the statutes and its commandments which I have commanded you all of the days of your life that your days may be long. So, he uses the word command twice in verse 1. This is not a suggestion. This is not even a strong suggestion. What is this? He is not appealing to your sense of willingness here. This is God saying, I am God and I am making a commandment here. And then he uses the phrase, this is a commandment that you would do them. God is not saying these are the commandments of God, and I'm encouraging you to leave here and think about this and pray about it in your devotional time during the week. He's not saying that. He's saying very simply, like if you want to know how to take this passage and apply it, he's saying this is a commandment, do it. Here are some things that maybe you ought to consider. Nope, not saying that either. He's saying, I have an expectation that you will pour Christ into the next generation. And the clear scriptural mandate here is that God has an expectation that you would do it. God is not saying if you feel called, well then, step into pouring Christ into the next generation. No, this is the call. He's, you are called. In fact, this is the very calling right here. So often I hear Christians explain away a sense of responsibility by using the term calling in self-serving ways. Like I know that I'm supposed to pour myself into my neighbors, but I just didn't feel called. I can see that that mother with five kids in nursery, has been in there the last nine weeks in a row, and she looks like she wants to just cry or take a nap um, when she shows up to church. Should help her, but I don't feel called. I'd like to help out, um, but I just really need to be in there to hear the sermon because I need to be fed. Um, because the person that's missed the last 70 sermons in a row, they couldn't possibly need to be fed, right? That's a bunch of rubbish. So I just wanted to spell that rubbish 
in my charming, sarcastic way as we set this up. And I want to be really frank with you. This is an area, when I first planted the church that came together, merged with this church, when I first planted the church eight years ago, I did an absolutely terrible, not admirable job in loving my wife. She went into planting the church with me with a passion for children's ministry that surpassed any passion for children's ministry of anybody that I've ever met in my life. After about two straight years of missing every single worship service, because most people didn't feel called, if people did not feel like uh, showing up, she was the first person they'd call because she always says, yes, that's on you, that's not on me, babe. Um, or they wouldn't call, and she'd just whip something together, and it would be awesome, because she's good like that. And I watched it absolutely snuff out her desire to do children's ministry. I watched somebody who had a passion for something get burned out on it, and then not want to do it anymore. Ever happened to anybody here? Might not be children's ministry, but you had a passion for something, and you realized that your passion became your coffin? You realize that by simply raising your hand and saying, yes, I'll do this one week, it became a death sentence. Um, well, maybe I'm biased here, but I have serious doubts that that's how calling works. God calls nobody to press in because somebody else will do it. Was God calling a young mom with three babies, the pressures of planting a new church, the pressures of not having two nickels to rub together to just continue to grind it out until she just wanted out of ministry that used to be her driving passion? And you know what? I could point fingers, but it's 100% on me because at any time I could have stepped in and said something. And, and, and I do want to say that, that there were people here, um, I'm looking at you, Marshall, and Dev, um, and, and, and there's others that, that just stepped in that started to say, man, we got to grab this thing and run with it. So thank you. They're, you're precious. But this is not an area where I've led well. So do not miss my point. I'm not saying that every single person here is called to go sign up for children's ministry when you leave here. This isn't the guilt message that hopes to just increase our children's volunteers. That would be awfully convenient, right? We just sent out like six of them with the church plant, so let's do a message to make you all feel terrible about yourselves so that you fill their slots. But I'm not saying that every single one of you is called to be serving formally in the children's ministry, but I am saying that every single one of you is called to take up the mantle to pour Jesus Christ into the next generation. Amen? So, what exactly is he calling us to pass along in the first three verses? First, he says the statutes, and then the commandments. Those are the first two things. And there could be a bit of confusion between those two terms, because in English, they're actually pretty close to synonyms, aren't they? Um, but in Hebrew, statutes means his teachings. So he's saying, take my teachings, pour them into the next generation. Commandments simply means commandments. So they're passed along the teachings about the Lord, the commandments of the Lord into the next generation. And then he says that they may fear me. So the fear of the Lord. This is a tricky one, right? Because people's past experiences and the history of the church moving in pendulum swings has distorted this. Many people, I actually remember doing a message. Some of you might have remembered this. This was years ago. I asked you to raise your hand if you grew up with a fear-based view of God. And, and, and if you grew up with this view of God as some grumpy, 
gloomy, sky meanie who is out there to just punish you every time you stepped out of line. And if that's the way you grew up, you hear the term the fear of the Lord, and you're going to interpret that through that set of interpretive lenses. But the pendulum has swung all the way over because the fear of the Lord has been stripped from a lot of Christian teaching, especially when we're talking about children. We can't tell children to have fear of the Lord. And now God is some kind of postmodern hippie and he sounds like Morgan Freeman, and he would never judge you for anything or any decisions or any lifestyle choices because who is God to judge? He's God. Like, if you ever start a sentence with who is God to, like, start over. That is a broken sentence. But if you are not instructing your children in the way of the Lord, I mean, you can consider what it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So therefore, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom and you're not instructing your children in the fear of the Lord, that means that you're instructing a fool. I'm not saying it. The Bible did. The fourth thing that we're called to pass on is a legacy. He says, you're going to pass this on to your sons and your sons' sons in verse 2. And this idea of passing on a legacy is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on. So as we teach of the Lord to the next generation, God says he's going to do something really fascinating. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Listen to this. As we preach the gospel to the next generation, God promises to multiply the next generation. Do you get the magnitude of this? Are you guys catching what I'm trying to throw out there? As we pour Christ into the next generation, God makes you a promise. He will multiply the next generation. This whole series on multiplication was not something that I came up with and it's not something that I spent a bunch of time reading a bunch of hokey church growth tactics. I'm simply talking about taking God at his word and seeing if he'll do what he promised what he would do. Just like we just sang this morning. We just had our, think about this, we just had our young people up here singing, look what God has done. When we take God at his word, we get to stand in awe of seeing God honor his word and bring himself glory. And our hearts get to take satisfaction in that. Amen? So this leads to the first premise of this morning's message. Healthy churches absolutely multiply into the next generation. And I want to make that as strong of a statement as I possibly can so you leave here saying he could not have said it any stronger with any words in the English language. This is an absolute healthy churches multiply into the next generation. This is not my opinion. This is not our philosophy of ministry. This is, as the series is called, this is simply church. Healthy churches multiply into the next generation. This seems simple enough, but somehow this has become controversial. And it shouldn't be. But somewhere along the line, churches bought this lie that some churches 
are called to multiply into the next generation, and some churches are just called to become old farts and die. What a bunch of absolute not taking God at his word rubbish. I mean, at least, I don't want to sit on ivory tower here and point fingers. I would go so far as to say within every church, there are people who see the legacy of pouring God's legacy into the next generation as optional. All I have to do to prove it to ask is to say, when you heard what the message was about, were you inclined to tune out? And if you were, then you know that you saw it as optional. But just in case you think I'm fudging my exegesis or I'm going a little bit too far with this term multiply, let me ask you, who is getting multiplied to in this next generation in this passage? The generation who just left Egypt to die in the wilderness, like I, I said. So he's talking to a younger generation about raising up the younger generation even still before that next generation even existed. Get that. It's not like he's saying, man, we've got a crisis here. There's a lot of babies back there in nursery, so I better preach a sermon about children's ministry so somebody will get back there. The next generation didn't even exist yet. And he's saying, here's the mandate. Think through this. Be forward thinking about how you're going to take this to the next generation. This is an area, and this is probably where I'm going to offend somebody, but as you know, I, I, if it's biblical, I don't care. Um, people move the goalpost to justify lack of fruit. When we stop seeing the church multiplying to the next generation, the most common thing that I see the church begin to do is redefine the way that they define fruit. So instead of seeing a living God working with a powerful, life-saving, life-giving, saving up the next generation gospel and making them lovers of God, they move the goalpost. It's like Charlie Brown trying to kick a field goal, you know? The fruit begins to be defined by doctrinal precision or becoming the pretentious watchdogs in the community as if we need more of those. So they begin to create this false either-or kind of paradigm. You're either reaching young people or you're shepherding saints to Christian maturity as they age as if these two things should in any way be opposed to one another. As if these two things should not be synonyms to one another. As if in some way the mature are able to watch the gospel influence die with the last member of the church. These things are not supposed to be in competition, folks. I got to watch this with one of my favorite people in the world. Um, he's preached here before, Pastor Dan Hardy. He was one of my mentors. Um, I remember asking him at a conference, how can I pray for you? This was about eight years ago. And he said, pray for my church. It's getting older. I'm getting older. I think um, Dan's about 62 now, started the church when he was about my age. And there were no young people left in the church. So they just got, they committed. Think of this. They committed. They got together weekly and got on their knees and cried out to God saying, God, fill this church with the next generation. I got to preach at Windsor Community Church. Dan, I hope you get to listen to this and you're encouraged. Like three or four years ago, and it was absolutely blown away. God had changed the whole dynamic of that church. Now, he didn't take the older saints out of there. 
he added younger saints to them, and boy, was it a beautiful heart. God heard that prayer. It wasn't that he was saying, hey, I don't love our older saints, or there's not a place for these older saints. He was saying, God, intersperse younger saints so that these older saints who have been seasoned can take what they've been seasoned with and pour it into this next generation that we might see a new generation of lovers of Jesus raised up. And God heard and answered that prayer. So my first question to you this morning is, do you believe that if we got on our knees as the body of Christ and begged him, God, raise up this next generation, that he would radically change the face of the church and he would keep it growing with next generation into next generation into next generation. Let me ask you though, what is it that they're multiplying? I love this. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. Look where each of these verses take us. It's beautiful. The thing that we are multiplying in this passage is the love for Jesus. Look, it does talk about commandments, statutes, rules in verses 1 through 3. Those are not bad things, but right smack in the middle of that is the passage that when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know how the scriptures read. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On this rests the whole law of the prophets. That comes from right here. He calls that the greatest commandment. So right Smack in the middle of the commandment to pour the gospel into the next generation is the commandment that Jesus calls the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So passing along statutes, commandments, and rules is a good thing. But brothers and sisters, it is not enough. If we pass along the morals of the Bible without a love for the God of the Bible then we will be passing along dead and lifeless religion that is cold, sterile, and eventually leads to kids tapping out because it doesn't make sense why they should remain a part of it. So how do we pass along the love of God? That's, that's the question here. I mean, it's easy to pass along rules, right? It could be as easy as, I'm bigger than you, do it! <laughs> that's not hard. I could do that with Calvin right now. I, I could say, clean your room. No, I don't want to. I'm bigger than you. Okay, well, I guess so. Um, anybody could pass along a rule. How do you pass along the love of God? I want you to think about that rather than me give you the answers. I'm going to wrap up here in a moment, but a couple of more things that I want to bring up. Um, actually, the last point, and then I'll give you some application, that the primary place where a young person learns to love the Lord their God is in the home. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. He's saying, when you go out with your kids and you're on a walk, talk to them about your love of God. When you're sitting with them, talk to them about your love of God. When they're laying down at night, talk to them about the love of God. You shall bind them 
as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, when he's saying you shall bind them between your eyes, that has been taken to mean phylacteries, if you know anything about the Jewish community. They still observe it in that way. But if you didn't, this you probably didn't know, the first phylactery never came into existence. Those are the little boxes that have scripture verses that they keep. It's usually parchment. And, and they keep it as a reminder. Those did not exist until the Jewish people came back from the Babylonian captivity in the fourth century BC. It was the first time. And this commandment was given 1400 BC. So for a thousand years, nobody interpreted the commandment to mean go put phylacteries on your head or prayer shawls on. It was supposed to mean keep them bound right here. Let it be at the forefront. And when something happens, when, when, when you're blessed, let it be so f at the forefront of your mind that you sit and train your children and say, honey, the reason we were blessed like this is because you have a God in heaven who's crazy about you. That's what it means to keep it at the forefront of your mind. When you see things Go in ways that you couldn't possibly explain except for the divine intervention of a loving and benevolent God in your life. It should be so at the forefront of your mind that you're able to just spit it out and say, that was Jesus. Honey, we didn't do that. And when you sit down and pray and you thank God for a meal, what you're saying is, God, you have provided for us our daily bread. And I'm praying here with my children that they may see that you are a provider, sustainer, and that you are the giver of all things that are good. And we want to keep it at the forefront of our minds, even as we do something as mundane as sitting down and eating our multiple meals during the day. So what you're supposed to do is he's saying, take the love of God and put it on display often and consistently. It has to be both, folks. It has to be often it can't just be Sunday mornings. It can't just be, we don't talk about God in this house, but make sure that you're ready on Sunday morning to get to church, and make sure you look good when you're doing it, and don't give me any trouble getting in the car. And, and if you can, show up looking like you love God so that I look good for my friends. <laughs> it's a great way to make your children see hypocrisy, folks. And it has to be consistency. It can't just be like, hey, we're going to, this week, we're going to go God crazy. And, and we're going to do family devotions that are four hours long. And you're going to memorize Leviticus this morning. Um, and then we won't talk about Jesus until the next presidential administration. <laughs> but um, then we'll do it again. And you'll memorize Deuteronomy. And we'll pick up where we left off. Um, it has to be often in consistency. So some application. You might be sitting there wondering, how am I supposed to apply this? The first, such an easy one. Everybody here can do this. As a matter of fact, I don't care if you tune me out the rest of the sermon. If you want to just apply to it. If you want to say, I applied the sermon, tune me out and start to do this because it'll be way more powerful. Pray is the first application. Whether you have children or not, every single one of you can labor in prayer for the next generation. Let me just ask a quick question to gauge your heart on this. Have you spent more time complaining about the next generation or praying for the next generation in the last week? Have you spent more time talking about them dang entitled millennials or more time on your knees crying out for their salvation? 
I think I know the answer. Seek to understand, number two, the next generation, and don't rush to be dismissive of them. Man, just by saying, hey, help me understand, why do you love this thing? I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. This is a cultural clash that's going on. I don't understand why you spend your time in social media rather than sitting and talking to people face to face, rather than berating them for it and making them feel like, well, that's stupid because I didn't do that when I was a kid. Um, ask them. Say, explain to me. I want to know. Bring me into your life. Older saints, number three, seek to encourage those who are in the thick of raising children. There's this idea out there that people can acquire. You ever hear this? Um, well, I had to suffer and make do when it was difficult. And when I was in their stage of life, so they need to learn to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and do it too. I heard this saying about a year back, and I remember just weeping when I heard it, and, and the implications are so beautiful. It says, the pioneers get slaughtered. No, uh, the pioneers get slaughtered so the settlers can prosper. Let me say it again without butchering it. The pioneers get slaughtered so the settlers can prosper. So what it mean, meant was, you think of that first generation that went back and pioneered the land. It didn't go well for them. I am, many of them got slaughtered along the way, but they did it because they had a view for the next generation that would settle the land. I think about when I started ministry, life was hard. And when we started planting a church, life was even harder. So as we're training up Eric and we're training up Daniel. Eric's moving into that house over there. It's a beautiful home. You can look at it and say, nobody gave me a house when I started ministry. How come nobody gave me a house? Or you could say, man, I got to be a pioneer of something. And I hope that this next generation, it never has to be as difficult for them as it was for us. Dear Lord, please, please let Daniel's church plant take off in ways that are so much easier and just avoid the pitfalls that I stepped into and the idiocracy that I constantly walked in. And if you're seeing a young parent struggling, take the struggles that you've learned and lighten their load. It tells us in Isaiah, a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. So if you're seeing a smoldering wick, don't sit there and be like, man, I'll pray for you and your smoldering wick. Fan that thing in the flame, man. That's the call of shouldering one another's burdens. The last three, do not create an atmosphere of children should be seen and not heard. Um, I used to tell the community group that I started on Tuesday nights, the, the kids would be loud and, loud and rambunctious. And I would say, man, if they run in here, like, let's not be in a hurry to just, oh, get away, get away, get away. we're studying our Bibles. What kind of message does that send? Right? Like, if you're like, you guys can be around, but you can never watch mommy and daddy study the Bible with other Christians. And if you do, we're going to make sure that you get out of the room as quick as possible so that you know you're a nuisance when we're doing it. <laughs> Number six, live consistently before your children and allow them to grow up in a home without hypocrisy and where there is, repent before them. There are a few things as powerful as a repentant life before your children. I've watched it. You know one of the things that I watch when I'm looking for a dad that I just really have respect for? A dad that will look and get down on their kid's level 
and say, buddy, I messed up. Would you forgive me? When I punished you, it was out of anger. And it was my anger that got a hold of me more than your sin. Would you please forgive me for the way that I responded to you in anger? That's a dad that just won my heart because that's a dad that demonstrated the heart of Jesus Christ to his children. Number seven, keep reminders of the love of God before you. And you're going out and in, you're coming in and in the forefronts of your minds. Let your home be full of reminders to exude the love of Christ always. And the last thing is make sure that we're passing along the right thing. Where a lot of children grow up and say, I grew up in a religious household. Do you know how many people I share the gospel with if that's the first thing that they say? Oh, I grew up in a religious household. If my children grow up saying that, and I'm saying this with my kids right there, if you guys grow up saying that, I failed you as a father. So hold me to it. You can. If that's what you take out of your upbringing, I failed you as a parent. Or will they grow up and saying, my mom and dad loved Jesus. I grew up in a household that loved Jesus. I grew up in a church that loved Jesus. And I was surrounded by people who constantly passed along the fact that they knew and loved God as if they knew him personally because they do. And so can you. And we're going to celebrate that as we go to the Lord's table for communion. God, thank you for the amazing love of God that we found in you. Lord, thank you that we can only love because you first loved us. And let us pass along that love to the next generation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're about to take communion, and I'm going to ask if the uh, ushers would come forward and distribute the elements to the four stations.